so, so good. And with that, it is hard to believe that we are in our final week of our Deep Faith series. We have been studying the letters written from the Apostle Paul to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. Letters that were written to help Timothy lead and guide the church, but also to help Timothy and us wrestle with what it means to have a deep faith so that we are grounded for whatever may come our way. We can stand the test of time. We have talked about what faith means, a deep trust in who God is and in his version of our story. We have talked about prayer as the importance of communication and connection with God because communication is the foundation for building trust. We spent time talking about the uh, about being rooted in the story of Christ, about developing a rhythm of life that keeps him central, and about the incredible and transformative doctrine of grace. That has been our journey over the last eight weeks. And for our final installment, we look to Paul's last words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. And as far as we know, these are the last words that Paul ever wrote. Words written from a dungeon with the hopes of helping Timothy continue to strengthen and grow his faith deep no matter what comes. And in these last words, we find Paul thinking about both his own end as well as what followers of Jesus will face as the world comes to a close. And so our passage today begins with these words. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult Times. Paul begins by speaking to the last days, and some of you just said to yourself, oh no, he's going to talk about end times. Here we go, eye rolls. Our faith tribe, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, in this tribe, there are some that when they hear last days or end times, those are trigger words right? For whatever experience you may have had with them, maybe good, maybe bad. For some of you, they're fighting words. And yes, we are going to talk about them today, but hopefully from a perspective you don't hear about as much. The end times or last days is a subject of major focus for us, so much so that it's in our name. Our name is a nod towards two of our distinct focuses and core beliefs. Seventh day is a nod towards the Sabbath and our connection with him and that time with him. And of course, Adventist is a nod towards the Advent, the coming of Christ, specifically the second coming of Christ. Uh, and uh, author and church historian Leonard Sweet says that without the Seventh-day Adventist church, the world church wouldn't have much of a developed sense of eschatology, which is a fancy way of saying in time. So he says that the Seventh-day Adventist church's contribution to the larger church world has been our study and understanding of end time events. So it was, uh, we focused on this because that is what our church kind of was birthed out of, was these end time events focus. Now, we'll get to more of that in a moment, more of that story, but I don't know about you, I don't know if you grew up in the Adventist faith system or if you're a part of that now, um, but we have had a variety of different experiences with this over the course of our lives. When I was younger, in time events, I just, I loved thinking about that. I loved thinking about it because to me, what it meant was I got to see Jesus. And I couldn't wait for that day to come. 
And so for me, I'd think about things like walking with Jesus on the streets of gold in heaven. Or I'd think about exploring the universe with him. Or, and this was, I, I haven't found anybody else that thought about this one, but I used to think about this. I used to think about flying with Jesus, like hand in hand, and over the sea of glass, and then like just touching the sea of glass right in the middle so it would ripple out to the edges. I don't know why I thought about that, but that was, that was something I used to think about. I had a friend who, when we were in high school at Columbia Adventist Academy, um, we uh, would go out, and I remember one night we were looking up at the stars, and we were talking about these early ideas of what the end times would mean in the last days. And, and he would tell me that he used to sneak out onto the roof of his house, and he would look out into the east, the direction that Jesus was supposed to come. And he'd look for this small cloud the size of a man's fist coming from that direction that would be Jesus was returning to the earth. And he'd get so excited. And he would imagine what the angels would sound like, blowing their trumpets, Jesus sitting on his throne with his arms wide open waiting to receive us. That's how we thought about the end times back then. And honestly, that's the spirit that the movement of the Seventh-day Adventist church was birthed from. It was a group of people that were desperate to see Jesus. So desperate that they were searching through the scriptures, trying to figure out when it might happen, when his return would come to fruition. And they started studying the books of Daniel and Revelation in a way that no one had done before. They started connecting dots that had never been connected before, and they thought they actually figured out when it was going to happen. October 22, 1844, was going to be the day that Jesus was going to return, and they couldn't wait it's a long story of what happened, what led to that moment, but now we call that day the great disappointment. And what do we mean by that, the great disappointment? People were so anxious to see Jesus on that day that I want you to listen to how they talked about that day after it happened, because of course, Jesus didn't come on that day. So here are a few words. One, Henry Emmons wrote on October 25, 1844, Dear Jesus, did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was, but after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint. And before dark I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Preacher Josiah Litch wrote on October 24, 1844, It is a cloudy and dark day here. The sheep are scattered, and the Lord has not come yet. Farmer Hiram Edson wrote, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept, Till the day dawned. James White, husband of Ellen White, founders of the church, found himself in meetings a week after October 22 and commented, I left the place of meeting and wept like a child. Can you imagine being so hopeful to see Jesus, so sure it was going to happen that if it didn't, you were absolutely Wrecked. But somewhere along the way, we lost our focus on seeing Jesus again. 
somewhere along the way, we still talked about the end times in the last days. And yes, Jesus was a part of that picture. Seeing him again was a part of the story. But the story started to become more about the end times and the persecution and the conspiracy theories and all the things that were going to happen at those end times. And we focused more on those and we started shifting from this focus of joy of seeing Jesus and we started to be more afraid. What if, it, what if we're not ready? What if we can't make it? What if the times are so tough that we're deceived? And there comes another trigger word, deception. Paul even talks about deception in chapter 3, uh, verse 13, he mentions it. And we're so worried about the evil that it's out there. We're so worried about deception that we take our eyes off of Jesus and we keep our eyes out for what may happen to us around us. And by taking our eyes off Jesus, guess what we're more susceptible to? Being deceived. All because our focus has shifted. Of course, it didn't help to see some of the brochures in the church lobby or to receive some of those postcards in the mail, you know the ones I'm talking about. The one with the beasts running at, at you, ready to devour you. Or the U.S. Capitol building on fire. The Statue of Liberty being torn down. My friend, Pastor Sam Lenore, who's going to be with us on September 24, I encourage you to be here that day. I love listening to Sam preach. Bring Kleenex. He gets you every time. Sam tells a story of walking into one of our infamous Revelation seminars. And he, he hadn't been there. He didn't know anything else that was happening. He walks in the room, and there was a picture like this one on the screen. Okay, again, no context except up front there was an elderly woman with a microphone. And while this picture was on the screen, she's singing a hymn that includes these words. Softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Come home. Come home, all you who are weary, come home to get eaten by beasts. <laughs> come home to what? I don't want to go home to that. Now, I'm not saying that seeking to discern the times that we're in is all bad, but I'm saying what I am saying is that if our focus is off that which matters, then, our, then, then we can be treacherous. Remember, everything incarnates. So if our focus is fear, conspiracy theories, and hiding from the evil lurking around every corner, then we create those kinds of communities and we become those kinds of people. Paul goes on to write about what happens to a person when Christ isn't the main thing. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. What's crazy is, especially in that last line, you realize that Paul is talking to religious people about religious people. He says they'll be selfish and boastful and proud, unloving, unforgiving, and cruel. In fact, Paul's description seems to be an unraveling of the Sermon on the Mount. 
which makes sense because we understand sin to be an unraveling of God's creation. Jesus was the one that said at the end times, sin will be rampant and the love of most will grow cold. So when Jesus isn't the center of our faith, when we get askew just a smidge, we can end up so far off course that we cause much pain and heartache to countless others. In their book, Read Jesus, authors Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost reflect that as should be obvious by now, we believe that Christian faith must look to Jesus and must be well-founded on him if it is to be authentic. If NASA was even 0.05 degrees off in launching a rocket to the moon, they would miss the moon by thousands of miles. And in many ways, this is the same as it applies to the gospel. Because of the fundamental role that Jesus plays in Christian identity, ministry, and mission, we believe it is critical to get this right and to constantly keep checking. Church history makes it clear that such shifts take place, but these shifts are usually inadvertent and take place incrementally as other issues press in and traditions create their own overlay, obscuring the core of the faith. Whatever the process, it results in an insidious change in the resulting religion. So if Christ isn't central to what we're doing, then a focus on the end times becomes more about fear than joy, more about signs than Jesus. When Christ isn't central, then we create a Christianity without Christ. A Christianity that looks nothing like him. And then we have people like what Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Jesus said, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. You can identify a tree by its fruit so you can identify people by their actions. Paul leans into this idea in verse 8 when he talks about religious teachers who are off-center. He says, these teachers oppose the truth just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith but they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Jonas and Jambres. Now, tradition has it that Jonas and Jambres were two of the ones that tried to trick people into thinking that the miracles that Moses did weren't real. Like when Moses' staff turned into a snake, they supposedly performed the same miracle, but I love the little line that Moses' snake ate their snakes. It's a little line, we pass by it a lot, but, but Moses' snake ate their snakes. Uh, their faith was counterfeit, though. It didn't stand the test. And sooner or later, what we put our faith into shows. Our true colors will be seen because, again, everything incarnates. It did for Janice and Jambres, and it will for us. So what is better? That we spend all our time looking for signs and investing in conspiracy theories, being afraid of what may happen to us? Or would it be better for us to spend our time obsessing about Jesus? He is the reason for our faith. He is the risen Lord. And he is both here now and coming soon. You guys have heard me say, we talk about the second coming of Jesus all the time. And I actually think when Jesus comes in the clouds, that's the third coming of Jesus. 
The first coming was a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. The second coming is his Holy Spirit who is here with us now. We have access. We can be with him. We can spend time with him now. And the third is when he comes again. So let's stop focusing on fear and start rejoicing in the joy that happens. If we can put joy back in the title of Seventh-day Adventist, Let's be a people desperately seeking to spend time with Jesus here on earth now and in heaven soon. And let us trust that no matter what happens here on this earth, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Because in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for Jesus has overcome the world. Let's spend just a moment talking about the devil, shall we? <laughs> Amen. I didn't hear that one out there. Uh, I have some people that when I talk about the devil, they're like, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk about the devil. It brings things up. And the only problem with that view is you're only scared to talk about the devil if in your mind the devil is bigger than Jesus. Right? I appreciated Josue's leading today in talking about the power of the name of Jesus. Because you see, there is power in the name of Jesus. Think about how the demons reacted when they met Jesus. They cowered. They had to do whatever he said. Whatever came out of their mouth, they had to obey. The only, like, conversation that happened was the two demons that were thrown into the pigs. And all they said were, don't throw me there, throw me there. Right? Jesus is powerful enough. You don't have to be afraid of the end times. You have to claim the name of Jesus. The de devil schmevel, I say. Now, C.S. Lewis actually says that the devil doesn't care if you're so afraid of him that you hide in a corner or you fail to believe he exists. Either way, he's got you. So be aware of, yes. Recognize Jesus' words that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy? Sure. We have to be aware of the controversy that's happening. Evil is real. But we have to remember Jesus is bigger. Jesus is more powerful. There is nothing evil can do in the face of Jesus. So let's cling to Jesus all the days of our lives. Thankfully, Timothy had a good example of li living this way, of what living with Jesus at the center can look like. Paul continues, But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. Timothy had front row seats to observe a life committed to Jesus. Now I'm sure you have heard it said that some of us will be the only Bible someone else will read. Some of us will be the only Jesus other people will see. So we do have a responsibility to live our lives devoted to Jesus for others to see. It doesn't mean perfection. Paul was far from perfect. But he continued to push, or as he says in his final words, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Now, these must have been hard words for Timothy to read from his mentor, his spiritual father and friend, 
knowing that Paul's end was near. And who knows, perhaps by the time Timothy got this letter, it had already happened. These words were words from beyond the grave. But these words give Timothy the opportunity to reflect and be thankful for the years he had watching Paul live out his love for Jesus. He watched Paul stay laser-focused on the Savior even when everyone else was against him. He observed the sparkle in his eyes every time Paul talked about the day when he gets to see Jesus again face to face. Paul's charge for Timothy was to fight the same fight that he devoted his life to. In fact, he said that in his first letter to Timothy where he wrote, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. What is the eternal life he was to cling to? Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. So how do we keep Christ at the center when everything else seems to point the other way? How do we keep a deep faith in a time when the love of most grows cold? Paul gives us three clues in his last words. One, we remember the story. Paul writes, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The Bible has been so misunderstood in recent years. People want it to serve their needs, answer all their questions, but it's not a textbook. It's a story. Leonard Sweet writes again, we want a blueprint, but God gives us a story and a song instead. And I said before, the power of the scriptures is not that they just tell of stories that happen once upon a time. The power of the scriptures is that it tells stories that happen all the time. We all know what it's like. We read through this book and we don't just find good stories. We find ourselves in these pages. We remember who we are when we read this book, which is really grounded in whose we are. We all know what it's like to face our giants. We all know what it's like to be betrayed. We know what it's like. Their story is our story. And so when we read this story, it guides us, it corrects us, it inspires us, and it changes us as we study these words together, which ties into our next lesson. So we remember our story and we remain connected to community. In Paul's closing words, he tells Timothy to, among other things, encourage your people. Now, this assumes that Timothy has people, right? In Paul's closing remarks, as he often does in his letters, he mentions names. And here's just a few of the people he mentions. Mark, Luke, Priscilla, Aquila, Onesiphorus, Erastus, Trophies, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the other brothers and sisters, he says. Paul knows much about how we all need community as followers of Jesus. He even talks at one point about being abandoned by some of them and how hard that was, but that God never abandoned him. Community is critical to stay strong and to grow in our faith and to weather life's storms. 
We were created by a community of three, and we were meant to be in community. It is how we grow. So don't let the devil convince you you can do it all on your own, that you don't need people. Salvation, going to church isn't about a salvation issue. Going to church is about having people, having a community that you are journeying with. So find your people and your community and invest in that community. If that's here, we would love to have you. If it's somewhere else, invest in that community. I truly love this community. And I don't just say that like it's because I get paid to or anything. I really do love this. This is the church that I have been looking for my whole life. A church laser focused on Jesus that thinks that the mission is one word, to love well, that if we're truly following Jesus, then we're gonna love him and each other and our neighbors well. That's gospel. And I love what God is doing in us. I love every week there are stories of the spirit moving, of power happening, of people coming and being impressed and touched. And I'm so excited at the end of our service today, we're gonna celebrate Lawrence, who is making his profession of faith today. God is at work in this community and I can't wait to see what he is going to do next because the joy and the freedom and the love and belonging that I experience here every week that I see happen here every week is palpable. And I can't wait, I can't wait because God has so much more in store. So we remember our story, we remain connected to community and in Paul's own words, we work at telling others the good news. This is the ministry God has given us. And people, when Paul says this, I don't think he's talking about evangelistic programs, even though they have their place. In the context of the life he lived, the race he ran, I think he means to tell others the good news by how you live your life as much as he is by the words you use. The advice of St. Francis of Assisi still resounds. Preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. Far too many people stopped believing in God because of people who claim to believe in Jesus but act nothing like him. I just had another one of those conversations last weekend. I'm so tired of those conversations. People that just can't believe in God because the people who claim to follow him are mean and cruel and judgmental. Our job is not to judge anyone. Our job is to connect people to Jesus. Period. Love people, care for people, reflect Jesus in their lives. That's what we're, our job is and let Jesus go to work. So let us walk differently here at Crosswalk. Let us be consumed with Christ here so much so that his love and his grace and his good news of the gospel story comes out of our pores. That people walk in here and they say, those people, why are they so happy? Why are they so filled with joy? Why are they so loving? Do they know what's going on in the world? Yeah, we know. And it's hard. But Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better. Our call as Christians is to be known by our love. Yes, they will know us by our love. This is our call, our command, to love others as he loves us. By this, all people will know we are his followers by how we love. We must love well. 
So let us keep Jesus at the center of our conversations. Let us look forward to when we get to see him again. Let us change our focus off of end time fear and let's just celebrate the joy of when we get to see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine that day? It's coming, my friends. It's coming and it's coming soon. And so let's keep our eyes on him. Let's remember our story. Let us remain connected to community and let us work at telling others the good news. The Apostle Paul closes his letter with these words, revised slightly for our application. We will let him end the series. The Lord stands with us and gives us strength so that we might preach the good news in its entirety for all to hear. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for loving us beyond measure. measure. I thank you for the words from Paul to Timothy that have taught us so much over these last eight weeks. May we continue to allow these words to soak in us and to help us grow our walk and our faith with you, keeping Jesus at the center so that as we leave from this place, we may be empowered to love other people in a way that makes them wonder who the source of that love is. I thank you for all you do for us. I thank you for each person that invests here in this community and what you're doing here in Portland through Crosswalk. And not only do I wanna pray over us, but I wanna pray over all of our communities in the greater Portland area, God, that are seeking to lift you up. May we do so well. May we stop being judgmental, hypocritical, May we stop the negativity and may we keep focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that the fruit that's produced in us will last to eternity. We love you so much, Jesus, and we can't wait to see you face to face. Until then, be our guide, be our strength, help us grow deep in our faith. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray.